Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, to chapter 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, to chapter 11, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open up to page 900. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see all of you and so many of you, actually. Um, cases have been dropping Precipitously, I think uh, the last uh, study I found was uh, for the last six weeks or so, um, cases of infection rates have dropped about 77%. And now that because um, we even have vaccines going out in strong numbers, we have about 15%, more than 15, I think by now, of people in the United States that are vaccinated. But even so, 77% a 77% drop is pretty incredible. And so now studies are being done to see um, if um, we can somehow study like antigen specific, like T cell immunity and things like that. And because it's not just about antibodies, right? It's about if you have the T cells that can produce uh, the antibodies because they're the ones that have memory, things like that. And so studies are being done I'm very hopeful um, and so, very happy to see so many of us here so that we can worship God together and we can pray together, we can listen to the Word of God together and have His Holy Spirit change us, transform us, and renew us. Let's pray before we begin. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept Your Word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So many people are fasting in the in this season of Lent. Uh, I didn't expect so many people to put in that piece of paper or email me. Uh, if you are, though, and you haven't, and you'd like me to pray for you, please do. And out of the people fasting these uh, 40 days of Lent, I've seen uh, the vast majority or a lot of them are fasting something that has something to do with social media or some kind of streaming service. 
I think that's really good. You know, I think the Holy Spirit is moving. Um, maybe during this COVID period, all you did was watch Netflix. I, I don't know the, the Asian ones, like Karuko Ten. I, I totally butchered that. But there's something like that, or Hulu, or, you know, Instagram. And so a lot of people are... And I think that's a really good thing. And as you give certain things up, what we really want to do is take the time that we would have used for those things to read the Word, to pray, to study the Word, to worship God. So I pray that we will be a church that really is centered around the gospel and the worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, today we finally come to the end portion of the Apostle Paul's instruction on Christian freedom. Finally, I say, because we've spent many weeks and many chapters have been devoted to Christian freedom, starting from chapter 8 until the end of this passage. I believe this theme really does go on to chapter 11, verse 1. And so what does Paul address? He addresses this question. If the Bible doesn't specifically forbid or condemn it, don't I have the freedom to choose? If the Bible doesn't specifically say, you can't do this, Eugene, can't I just choose what I want to do? So these past three chapters were on how a Christian should function within the framework of his freedom. These are questions also asked in forms like, what if the Bible doesn't tell us? Which job should I take? Huh? What if it's like a, a moral gray area that we're not too sure? And so Paul answers it with the three chapters, and this is his conclusory statement on the matter. It's in this passage that we have one of the most important and essential statements in the whole Bible for a Christian. It's so foundational that it is the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's in verse 31. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. This is the bottom line for the Christian. This is the meaning of life. We exist for one primary reason, and that is to glorify God. And you can't get more broad than the statement, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So what does it mean to glorify God? And why does it seem God is so concerned for his own glory? John Piper in Desiring God, in his book Desiring God, writes, God's own glory is uppermost in his own affections. In everything he does, his purpose is to preserve and display that glory. To say his glory is uppermost in his own affections means that he puts a greater value on it than on anything else. He delights in his glory above all things. In Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 to 11, this is what God says to Isaiah. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? 
my glory I will not give to another. So what does that mean? In the very least, God takes his glory as ultimate priority. As fallen human beings, we, as fallen human beings, we are perpetually tempted to take away glory from God, denying Him worship and obedience. We constantly want to exalt ourselves above our Creator that we want to believe. We are God's. God is more like a genie who works primarily for my sake is what we think, and thereby putting ourselves at the center. We have undeniably followed our first parents' example in believing and trusting in the enemy's lies and not God's word. So what is taking away the glory from God even mean? And what does it do, though? What is the big deal? In Numbers 14, when Moses was leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, they started to murmur and complain. They would say things like, oh, if we only died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land, which was Canaan at the time, so that we could die by the sword and die a gruesome and painful death? You know what we should do? We should pick a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. They were saying, it's too hard to follow God's direction. It's not worth it. His promises aren't all that. Let's go back to living the way we used to. You know, it must be the human condition to forget so easily the web that does entangle. How bereft of meaning anything in the world is without God. And then after they say that Moses and Aaron fall to their faces and plead with the people of Israel not to do this. Please don't do this. Don't blaspheme God. And you know what they did when Moses and Aaron did that? They started to pick up stones because they wanted to stone Moses and Aaron and kill them. That's when the Lord appears. He appears in the tent of meeting to Everyone, everyone was able to see the Lord does appear. Remember, there was no time in history that the people of God could so regularly see the physical manifestation of God. And they still would not follow God's word. The Lord would say to Moses in verse 11 of chapter 14 in Numbers, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. You know, to despise, to treat with contempt, to revile God, that's dishonoring God. That's not giving Him glory. And through murmur and disobedience, that's exactly what the Israelites were doing. God was going to wipe them out and start all over with Moses. And, but here is Moses' famous intercession. He says that the Egyptians will hear of it. You brought these people up out of Egypt, and they know that you, God, are in the midst of the people. The people witnessed 
your pillar of cloud and pillar of fire by day and by night. And they will say that the Lord was not able to bring up his people to the promised land. In the intercession for the people, Moses uses God's glory and his name as the primary reason for his plea not to wipe out the Israelites. You know, God does listen to Moses' plea and doesn't wipe out the entire people then and there. But no one, mind you, no one except the families of Joshua and Caleb made it to the promised land then. Because in case you were listening to this and started to think, hmm, why don't I just pray like that? Oh God, don't punish me for my constant unrepentant sin. What will the neighbors say? What will the people around me think because they know I'm a Christian? Won't your name be profane, God? And so people will keep on doing that too. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20, God says, But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, in that the people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. The Israelites were being punished now, and through exile because of their rampant, rampant idolatry and sin. But even when they were exiled, they would profane God's holy name. The people of God, the people of God have a seal on them. In the Old Testament, it was circumcision. And in the New Testament, it's baptism. But the people of God have a seal on them. But when they were scattered, they gave God bad press. When the peop other people looked at the people of God, people who call themselves Christians, they're like, their God isn't much. They're nothing. They're not all that. They're no different from me. And they gave God bad press. They went to the ends of the earth, and instead of living holy lives unto God, thereby bearing witness to his holiness, they just mingled like everyone else. And God will not tolerate his name being profaned. And he says that he will vindicate his holy name. How? How? And Ezekiel continues in, ver in chapter 36. He says, I will, take from you, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you, will, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the first example that I gave, Moses interceded. But it wasn't enough to save all the people. In fact, God denies Moses when he asks to be blotted out from the book that, was, that God wrote. He said, God, if you're not going to save these people, please blot me out. Instead, take me is what Moses was saying. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. In Ezekiel, though, we see God's plan of redemption. There will be someone who is worthy to take on the sins of the world. Moses wasn't good enough, but there will be someone who is worthy to take on the sins of the world who will clean his people from all uncleanness and idols and put a new heart and new spirit in them. 
You see what Moses lacked? Jesus completely fulfilled. It's by his life, death, and resurrection, we can have a new heart and new spirit. And through God, his son, he sends us now his Holy Spirit, puts his spirit in us so that we can walk with him and in his ways. This way, we can live for his glory instead of earning his disdain and displeasure. Without Christ, without Christ, that is exactly what we would be doing. We would be earning his disdain and displeasure. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, I see this more clearly as time goes on. I see it with what our current president is doing, trying to codify through executive order all the blasphemous things that go directly against God's norms for sexuality, marriage, the sanctity of life from the womb, his responses to the rest of the world and genocide that happens. You know, last I read, uh, they were putting the Uyghur Muslims, not just in slave labor camps, but they were sterilizing the women. And now there are reports that CNN reported of women just being gang raped. One account said, how could you do this? One woman responded, how can you do this to your mothers and daughters? We're human. And the response that the guard would have, would he would smash her head against the wall saying, you're not human, you look like an animal to me. If we don't speak up for those people that are suffering, what are we? Do we really believe the sanctity of life? And you can't keep on saying, God is kind, he will forgive me, while continually spitting on his word and blaspheming his name, there will be a time when his patience will end. In Jeremiah chapter 14, this is what the Lord says to Jeremiah. He says to Jeremiah, Do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Why? Why does he have to go with the wrath part? Why can't God just clean everything up? Isn't he God? And the answer is, he is God. And it, precisely because he is a God, he is a God of justice, he will never bypass justice. And the wages of sin is death. And it must be paid. This is why, this is why, whatever we do, whatever we do, we ought to glorify God. This is why there's specific instruction in the word that we're not to take for granted, that we're not to just toss out. Take, for example, and this will sort of lead us into next week as well. In Titus chapter 2, he talks to a younger woman. Younger woman, he gives this instruction. Love your husbands and children. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home. That means own the home, manage the household well, right? Working at home, kind, and submissive to your own husbands. This is the instruction that he gives to younger women in Titus 2. Why? Why does he give that instruction? So that you will have a good life? No. 
so that you will have a peaceful family? No, this is what he says. So that the word of God may not be reviled. This is about the glory of God. This is why younger women should act in this way. Younger men likewise, like the women, are to be self-controlled. You are to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? So you look good as a young man? So you can boast? No. It says here, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So no one can blaspheme God and revile his people. What about bond servants and doulas? What if your boss is like a really, really bad guy? Like incompetent bad. It says here, you are to be submissive in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So you get a good raise? So you get the perks of being the boss's pet? No. It says here, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Everything we do is to glorify God, for it is by grace we are saved, and now we are being trained unto godliness. Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, is what the word says. So going back to Paul's conclusion, we put verse 31, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, that line into context. And this is especially something we must understand today. How do we glorify God in our freedom? What do I do with the liberty I have in an area maybe the Bible doesn't specifically talk about? Like eating meat that's been offered up to idols. Like, shall I take this job or another job? Should I marry right out of college or should I stay single a little longer and serve the church? What do I say about that? And in verse 23, he writes, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on ground of conscience. But for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All things are lawful. It's a statement that the Corinthians were apparently saying all the time. And it was in saying in a response to something. People ask, can we do this? They go, all things are lawful. Well, can we do this? All things are lawful. And this was obviously not good because as we've read in the previous chapter, that they were going to idol festivals, even participating in the orgies, which was evil. And so in the first two verses, I'm sorry, in, in the first four, four verses, he gives us three principles on how to discern Christian freedom. Because he starts off with, you have freedom, but not everything is helpful. The word for helpful is profitable or advantageous. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 5. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better, it is helpful, it is profitable, it is advantageous that you lose one of your members, then your whole body go into hell. That's the word, okay? And so all things are lawful, but not all things build up. 
That's the first principle. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The word for build up is oikodameo, right? And this is from the word oikos. If it sounds familiar, oikos, we know, means the home, right? So oikodameo literally means to build the house or to build the home. All things are lawful, but not all things build the home. This is the Greek word for edify. So here's the first principle. You are to edify rather than self-gratify. How do we edify? You are to edify rather than self-gratify. And how do we edify? Number one, read the word. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving his exhortations to the Ephesian elders, and he says this, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, edify, and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Read the word of God. Number one, how do you edify? Read the word of God. Number two, listen to the preaching and teaching of God's word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 14, uh, verse 3, Paul says, Instead of speaking in tongues, I want you to prophecy, which is the preaching and teaching of God's word. Prophecy is teaching and preaching God's word. So listen to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Number three, this is from 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love edifies. The third way we can edify is to love one another. And we'll get a little bit more into all these later. Number four, how do we edify? You obey and mature as a Christian, like it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. So the first principle is you are to edify rather than self-gratify. The second principle is you are to put others over yourself. You are to put others over yourself. Now, this is difficult because of the rampant selfishness this culture promotes. It's all about treat yourself, whatever that means. I need a me day, you know? As if you didn't live almost all of the 24 hours, seven days a week that you've been given for yourself already. You know, this is a serious question that you can ask in your larger groups too is, when was the last time you did or didn't do something for someone else outside of your immediate family? When was the last time you did or didn't do something for someone else outside of your immediate family? I say that because you might be like, I fed the kids, or I came to work on time today. Dude, that's your job. This is, this, come on, right? When was the last time you did or didn't do something for someone else outside your immediate family? Was it an hour ago? Can you remember? Was it a few hours ago? So if it was a few hours ago, of the 240 minutes that you had, did you give five minutes to someone else? Was it a few days ago? Was it a week ago? Was it a month ago? You know, if you want to use your freedom profitably, put others over yourself. Here's the third principle. I want you to remember this. It's liberty over legalism. Liberty over legalism. Freedom over pharisaical behavior. You think long enough, you'll find something about someone that bothered you. You know, 
Those kind of people are very suffocating. Uh, they just strangle the joy out of your relationship. Don't be that person, okay? Don't be that person. Um, don't be that person that goes, hey, um, I, and people use Christianese too. Hey, uh, I was thinking slash praying, and I remember you ate my grilled cheese after I offered it to you, but I only offered it to you because you had this hungry look on your face. You look so poor and pitiful. Truth is, I needed that grilled cheese to fill my macros, but I wanted to let you know that I forgive you. Don't be that person is what I am saying. People like that have no freedom to enjoy. In the same way, don't go around asking either. Hey, um, I noticed that you didn't look me in the eye today, and I was wondering if I did anything to upset you. Please, please, just eat the grilled cheese, eat the meat, and stop asking questions. William Barclay would comment on this particular verse by saying it means don't ask fussy questions. Don't ask fussy questions. This was in sharp contrast to the Jewish culture of the day. They would ask a million questions from where was this meat taken from? How was it killed? Where was it raised? Who touched it? Who cooked it? Very similar, mind you, to people today who eat organic slash all-natural slash grass-fed slash pasture-raged slash sustainable farm foods. Uh, I saw this great comedy skit where this couple ordering food asks where the chicken was raised to the waitress. The waitress comes by, what would you like? We would like the chicken. It's like, oh, uh, but first we have a few questions about the chicken. So they give this person like a whole portfolio of where the chicken was from, where it was raised, how old it was. And then they go, can I visit the farm that the chicken was raised? This is while they were trying to order lunch. And then they're like, yeah, sure, it's about you know, 20 miles up. And so they drive up to the farm, and then they subsequently fall into a cult. But that was like a comedy skit that I saw. But it's being fussy. It's like asking for everything. It rips the joy out of everything, and it really, really takes away your freedom. And this is why we saw verse 26 is really from Psalm 24. It's a Jewish prayer people would pray before they ate. So Paul is saying, just say the prayer, eat the food, stop asking so many questions. So how to use your freedom well? The third principle is stop being so fussy. Okay? And we're going to go on, because there is a special case which gives us a fourth principle. In verse 27, it says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Here is a special case which gives us the fourth principle. What if, what if you were invited to go somewhere and they serve you food? The answer is eat it. Eat it. But what if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered to an idol in idol sacrifice? The answer is then don't eat it, right? The fourth principle is this, condescension, not condemnation. Condescension, not condemnation. If you're about to take a bite into a big juicy steak and someone goes, hey, that's been offered to an idol, 
you would be like, man, why did you have to go and say that for? I've been fasting for like four days. Dude, seriously, why are you even here? And like Pastor Eugene's larger groups. Ah, anyway, well, no, not really. That's not what you're supposed to say. Paul says that if that happens, then don't eat it. Not for your conscience. Your conscience is clear. An idol is nothing but for his conscience. So this is what actually happens. You are now condescending to someone of a weaker faith. By condescending, what we are really saying is you are loving that person. And that's the key here, isn't it? It's you go down to this person's level. Why? Why do you condescend? Why do you go down to this person's level of faith? So that you can bring them up. You don't let them stay down there forever. But by condescending, you're able to teach them the right way to enjoy Christian freedom. Now, this is, uh, this is more um, application, but if you have to decide between offending a non-Christian versus offending a Christian, who do you offend? If you have to decide between offending the non-Christian and offending the Christian, who do you offend? The answer is you offend the non-Christian. You offend the non-Christian. The scenario here that we see here is most likely a non-believer who is serving you this meat, and the person that's telling you it's from an idol festival is a believer. So you wouldn't eat it for the believer's conscience's sake. But this is also how we win over non-Christians. You know, as the days progress, we see the world only knows like, how to take something from you in a relationship. I only want this relationship if I can gain something out of it. But Jesus says something entirely different, something so revolutionary that we in the church still have to hear this again and again. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, that's how the world knows that we are Jesus' disciples, by the love we have for one another. Do you know in Acts 6, when the priests started to believe? These, these are Jewish priests. Do you know when the Jewish priests started to believe? When they saw the church set up deacons. The church set up deacons so that they could distribute the food to the widows. And the priests saw this and like, they know how to love each other. They know how to take care of each other. And many priests were converted, it says in Acts 6. So love one another. Maintain the unity of the body of Christ. This is the greatest testimony we can give to the world. Even if you have to offend a non-Christian host, he will eventually see that what you did, and he will recognize that what you did was an act of love. You could eat the food, I suppose. You could eat the food. You could be like, Shh, you don't know anything. I'm just going to eat the steak. But don't just eat the food when someone is condemning you for it. This way you protect the reputation of both of you as believers. In verse 31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So here we come back 
to the beginning, the ultimate purpose. The glory of God must be the Christian's objective in everything. The Apostle Paul is clarifying now the broad statement that we started with, with the teaching that do it for the glory of God means thinking of the good of others, both non-Christians and Christians. He doesn't want to benefit himself, but he wants to benefit others. Why? So that they might be saved. So that they would come to the understanding knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And here is the pattern that he gives to the people of the church. He says in this way, imitate him. The word for be is ginomai. Be imitating me. It's ginomai. Which means it's a word, it's a continuing verb. That means it's then and now. We are to continuously imitate Paul. This relevance extends to us now. But by calling on converts that he has raised to imitate, he really, what he does is he points them away from his from himself because he says that the very reason they should imitate him is because he is imitating Christ. He was able to do all these things because he was imitating Christ. It's Christ that condescended so that we would not be condemned. He met us in our sinful and broken state, and by his life, death, and resurrection, we who are believers also are lifted up. By Christ's condescension, we are lifted up so that we can obey and live for his glory. So what's the practical application? Don't give offense. Don't give in to sin. Don't cause others to stumble, Jew, Greek, or the church. Nothing we do should prevent a Jewish person from coming to Christ or a Gentile person from coming to Christ or a young Christian from maturing. Paul is saying, do what he did because he is doing what Christ did. This is how we apply the truth. This is why 1 Corinthians is so amazing because it takes the gospel and we can now apply it into our daily life lives not just five minutes out of the 240 minutes but every single moment of our lives and we're able to do it because of god's spirit who is in us so thanks be to god for that let's pray lord we thank you for the truth we thank you for the truth of the gospel jesus christ who condescended to us, met us in our helpless state so that we would be raised with him if we believe. We thank you for this incredible truth that we are reminded of this morning. Now help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to apply it so that we as believers, as disciples, as Christians will glorify your name, not bring reproach to it, not blaspheme it, not profane it, but in all that we do, we would give you glory. Let's take this time to pray. And for the past few weeks, we have been studying what it means to live out our Christian freedom. Lift up your heart to the Lord, asking that he would transform you 
that your actions, that your thoughts, that your words would glorify God. Let's pray.